I'm Carrie Miller, and this is my Friday book show, Big Books and Bold Ideas. Good to have you tuned in. The opening scene of Jacob Guanzon's first novel finds a father and his son in a suburban McDonald's. It's the boy's birthday, and he's torn between gobbling his Big Mac, a rare treat, and running off to play on the indoor playground. This small family feels familiar. The aroma of the French fries, the drone of the burger orders, the din of parents and distracted kids. Until you notice the sharp hunger, the restraint on the face of the father. His son's meal is cooling in front of him, and it's all Henry can do to stop himself from succumbing to the craving to eat his son's meal. It feels like the teeth of a rake, he realizes, but something deeper tells him no. Not your son's food, not the boy's birthday dinner. That hunger for more, sustenance, stability, respect, and power, infuses each page of Mr. Guanzon's novel as each chapter opens with a dollar amount, the cash that Henry has to his name. Jacob Guanzon grew up in Minnesota. He lives in New York. His novel is titled Abundance, and he joins us from the Marketplace Studios in New York. Jacob, welcome to the show. It's good to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me, Carrie. I want to note how you constructed what I think is really a remarkable scene of contrasts. That There's plenty, and that's evident in a fast food restaurant, you know, the giant sodas and the huge bags of burgers. And there's this sharp need of this father who wants his son to you know, have the experience of that careless plenty, but the father knows that there are consequences to that carelessness. So I'd like to know how you thought about constructing that scene and that contrast of a child and an adult in a world of plenty and poverty. It's a big question. Take it apart as needed. <laughs> it's It certainly is, but I'll do my best. Um, I think it felt... Even just when I was first experimenting with an opening scene, I wasn't really considering the symbolic value of beginning at a McDonald's and then later closing at a Walmart, but it felt like a comfortable and familiar enough environment for me to begin kind of tinkering, especially because I, that was my first job when I was 14 year old, years old back in Minnesota. And <laughs> so I could really, you know, familiarize with all the scents and textures of the place. But especially because of the play place element, I really felt like this was a really interesting access point to allow a child to just be and play amongst others and yet still feels so alienated by the, his own experience of poverty and experiencing homelessness and, and how that really undercuts the experience and innocence of childhood f for that character and then for the, the protagonist Henry's access point. Of course, it's a close third as opposed to a first-person perspective, but so really honing in on how that father is having to bear witness to this in such an unfiltered way and also experiencing his own degree of estrangement from the other parents in this place. And, um, mm. and I think that was the main reason why that felt like the, a great launch pad for entering this world, because before we even get to their home, they've been living out of Henry's pickup truck for the last months. McDonald's is a place that just about every American has at least some first-hand experience of, and so that felt like just 
the right access point for for this novel? You know, the way you describe these scenes in McDonald's and Walmart, you know, they reconnected me with this idea that when you walk into a McDonald's, it's just, it, it can be overwhelming. There's so much to choose from, and most of it isn't really expensive. It, it's, again, this idea of kind of overwhelming plenty, unless, you know, what you're spending that day in McDonald's is pretty much all you've got, which is the situation that Henry is in. If you've only got $5 to spend, and you're looking up at that huge board with all those options, it just seems like... In some ways, the sky's the limit, but it's not. And so much of America is like this, isn't it? Oh, a- absolutely. And I think uh, with that observation, you've really touched on the driving question that I was really wrestling with when writing this novel. And I mean, even just setting out the question that was always at the back of my mind through the writing and revision process and, and, and research as well was, what does it mean to be an American and how do you reconcile your sense of self-worth being an American when you're kind of when one of your birthrights is a life of material comfort and plenty? I mean, this is something that we're brought up believing that you know, if you work hard for it, this is your birthright. And yet we see Henry really struggle and he's by no means lazy. That is the last adjective I would ever apply to this man. He's made some bad decisions, but who hasn't, you know? He certainly breaks his back and will take whatever work he can to provide for his son and keep himself and his family afloat. And so that kind of, um, how would you call that? It just that, that discrepancy between you know, a cultural mythos and an, an individual experience was really driving the entire story for me. You know... I have a feeling you've heard this before from other readers, but your novel has, it's influenced the way I think about the kind of journalism I hear about poverty. I mean, and when that happens, I mean, that you know, when fiction kind of opens your eyes to something that's been around you for a long time, that's a really meaningful experience. Here's an example of that, Jacob. I was listening to a story from NPR a few weeks ago, and it was a story about the families who had received money during the pandemic. Remember, they were getting those special child uh, credit payments, but they were actually getting cash instead of tax credits. And I listened to the voices of these families, and we'll hear hear them in a minute. And I, I thought, you can hear exactly what you've just put your finger on, this idea that isn't it our right to be able to give our kids some sense of material stability and and comfort? So we pulled a couple of the voices from the story, and I want you to listen. I was elated. The water bill is a little high this month. Thank God I got this extra 300 Me and my son can go get fast food without making sure like I didn't hit the negative balance. Underwear, socks, school supplies, three or four bills. There's like more groceries in the house, paper gas, anything my son needed for school. The aftercare at my son's school so that I could pick him up when I was done with my school. I use my child tax credit to pay my bad gas bill. 
pay my rent before, medicine if needed. Medically, because of her feet, she needs certain shoes. So I was being thrown a lifeline that I desperately needed so that I could graduate, so that I can get a job, so that maybe we'll be a bit more stable. So, Jacob, I'm curious about what you hear in those voices and how it relates to the characters that you created. The first thing that jumps out at me by hearing those voices is just how many of them thought of their children first. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think these are such humble and universal parental concerns, and yet that kind of relief that you hear in these voices, you'd initially confuse it as excitement in a lot of these voices, but I think it's almost just a delirious sense of relief of just what that extra $300 or $250 in those tax credits meant for parents. And I mean, this is from a middle-class perspective, maybe not sound like that much money, but when you're talking about living paycheck to paycheck, that $300 to so many working Americans is like another person said a lifeline and and in in such a literal literal sense you know i mean that it's it it's it's all it's heartbreaking for me yeah i really appreciate you compiling those because it, it you know when we're talking about abundance and and fiction it's really important to never forget how real this kind of experience is for too many people in this country let alone the rest of the world One of the things that you've also done in creating this really complex character of Henry, the father, who, as you said, will do anything for his son. I mean, he, we're rooting for him. We're also fully aware that he has this vulnerable life of this child in his hands. And Henry isn't some paragon of virtue either. I mean, you've You've been so wise in the way you've created his backstory and his life. He is a guy, like many Americans, I don't care what your income is, who, have, who has made some mistakes and made some bad decisions. But now he's living with the consequences of those decisions and trying to do the right thing. How would you describe the way you put, you know, put these traits together in this character? Ooh, <laughs> that's a big question. Um, I think it really boils down to drawing from f- certain experiences of, you know, the people I grew up with back home, especially the people, I, and when I say back home, I mean back in Minnesota, as opposed to people I've been meeting here in New York and the people I was, you know, getting to know when I lived in Spain, but really going back and mining some of the experiences that I had, especially when I was uh, working on a landscaping crew through uh, my college years. You know, back then I was really faced with the kind of opportunities and privilege that this, you know, that the chance of going to college meant that I had alongside my, you know, I mean, my brothers, the guys, I mean, I spent day in, day out with breaking my back with, you know, both uh, on, on job sites and then seeing that, oh, what's going to happen to me in four years isn't on the table for you. And uh, I always, the, an anecdote I always like repeating when I reflect on my time with these guys was that we so carelessly used the term, uh, you know, there were the college kids and the lifers. And, mm. and, and mm. We, we threw that term around and the, the gravity of that, like how that really is a life sentence of 
grueling labor when you don't have a way out from these kind that kind of work. Let me ask you this too. Uh, you know, I mentioned that you've you've created this character who um, is living with some mistakes that he's made. I, I kept thinking, you know, everybody. Now, some of us make more serious mistakes than others, but. Everybody is the sum total, right, of good decisions and bad decisions. The difference is here that many of us have the resources to put and the the community around them and the family around them to learn from the mistake and not have that shadow the rest of your life. But so often in the income strata that Henry is in and his son – you know, the, the the mistake you've made is going to influence the rest of your life, and you're going to spend a whole lot of time trying to trying to get above that. It, it's clear that you thought about that. I am curious in what way. Yeah, well, I think that's a tremendous privilege for anybody who isn't judged by the worst decision they've made in their life. It speaks right. to privilege. Because anybody who's been through the the judicial system has come out with a felony or even some you know heavy misdemeanors are going to be judged and suffer the consequences for the worst decision they've made in their life. And I think this is a tremendous example of injustice in this country because that's why you do your time, right? Is to be forgiven, to you know pay your debts to society. And yet, when that debt is paid, the consequences still infiltrate every component of your day-to-day life. And so that was really important for me to kind of lay out here in every facet of Henry's life. We see where he's being limited by one big bad decision. And I'm not trying to uh, sugarcoat the gravity of the bad thing that he did. But uh, again, it's complicated because what motivated that? Well, he had a he didn't have any money to support his child. His girlfriend was pregnant, and he did what he had to do. And that was really the only option available to him. Yeah, I want to talk about that, but let me say this. If you're tuned in, I'm Carrie Miller, uh, and you're listening to my Friday book show, and I'm in conversation with Jacob Guanzon. His new novel, or newish, I should say, is called Abundance. Um, And for those of you interested in reading Minnesota authors, Jacob grew up in Minnesota, now lives in New York City. I love this novel. I hope you'll give it a look and you'll buy it and read it. Um, Jacob, you know, I want to say something about how how odd it is that we live in in a culture, in a country that really celebrates the redemptive story, right? They were down and out. Um, and then they, I hate to use this phrase, pulled themselves up by the bootstraps because it's been really distorted in our political discussion. But there is something that is really appealing to Americans about that, unless, you know, your redemption isn't shooting from the lowest point to the highest point, unless your redemption doesn't include some kind of wealth. Then it seems like we're not very interested what do you think? Oh, absolutely. I think, I mean, especially in, in a lot of mainstream media or more conventional forms of narrative that we're seeing in television shows and, and, and literature as well, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. it's 
what redemption looks like is often reflected in some sort of material compensation. And, and that conflation with, you know, some sort of spiritual or moral redemption alongside uh, material compensation, I think is, is kind of reductive and not a really useful way of conceiving of either notion, really. And so I think that was something I certainly wanted to at least undermine, if not outright subvert, with, uh, with <laughs> what was going on <laughs> in abundance. It's a really good way to put it. It seems that if your story from rags isn't to riches, eh, you know, then you haven't really made it. I mean, those are the kinds of stories we like, right? Not yeah. rags to, well, I made it to the next rung on the yeah. income level, and you have no idea how hard that was. Those stories are often not told, and you're you're working with some of that in this novel, yeah? Oh, a- absolutely. One of the kind of re- recurring beats throughout the the book is just a reminder of how commonplace and humble a lot of Henry's aspirations are. <laughs> you know, and I right. think that was really important to to kind of tick against that previous point we were talking about with elaborate reward, something extravagant in, ter- in a material sense for Henry. No, 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 that's not what he wants. Like, I mean, just just a home is, is what he's aspiring for, just a place of, of sanctuary and not nothing too fancy either. It's just, you know, a place to cook, a place to be alone and have some privacy. And that's such a a humble request and why it really points to housing being a fundamental human right. I mean, I don't uh, come out and say that in the book by any means. I don't want to, uh, I didn't want to t- use a novel to preach, but that's where my heart lies is, uh, is that you can't enjoy your other God given or, you know, legal rights, even if you don't have a home. What, what's wrong with using a novel to preach? Um, I think it can be off-putting. Uh, I mean, you, there, there, are certainly play, there are certainly writers who can do it, and I think maybe for a debut I wasn't ready to. And, of course, I'm... <laughs> like, <laughs> who's just, this guy and why is he preaching to me? <laughs> y- yeah, I mean, I feel yeah. like that every day. Anytime I'm having these kinds of conversations <laughs> about my book, it's like, oh, my God, it's, it's right here in front of me. Jesus, I'm still coping <laughs> with that fact alone. So to uh, posit myself as some sort of authority is, uh, you know, unless it's done with a great deal of irony. I mean, um, <laughs> as kind of a inherent contrarian myself, I don't think, I mean, I'm, I, I'm always, uh, I, I always shudder at anybody who takes a haughty kind of tone with me, you know, be it a politician or a writer on the page. And so to posit myself in that same way was just something I didn't want to do. <laughs> okay, but but let me say this. I... I look on preaching, you know, there's a lot of dimensions to the idea of preaching, and it doesn't always have to be self-righteous. It always doesn't have to be righteous. I I think there is some pretty necessary preaching going on in this novel, and I'm glad for it because, you know, it's opened up the conversation we're having. (laughs) Does that make sense? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> Are you uncomfortable with that? Yeah, I, I think I, I think it's it's just the word preaching. But um, yeah, and I, I mean maybe this is just me trying to save 
face a little bit. And um, I think I'd like to think of what I'm doing when we're when dealing with these kinds of very pressing and depressing, really, social issues um, that have such real material and human consequences on a daily basis for so many people that as a writer and particularly as a, a fiction writer, it only felt appropriate for me to say to to the reader, just, hey, look at this, just kind of not not preaching, but if we want to use those kind of metaphors, shepherding their view over towards, mm. you know, this direction and kind of narrow <laughs> the scope down to say, like, eh, this is kind of messed up, isn't it? You know, and that that's, <laughs> yeah. that, that's the kind of preaching I'll admit to. <laughs> okay. Shepherding their view in this direction. Yep. Okay. Um, I, I thought the decision to label each chapter, to start each chapter with the dollar amount that Henry has to his name was really genius. And I'm curious about how that came together. Well, thank you for very much for saying that, uh, because that's it's something that I was particularly excited about myself, because, um, you know, before I even got to the idea of you know Henry as a character, and what what did his family and uh, his relationships and whatever look like? I had that 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 structural conceit came to me. Oh, I was, hmm. yeah, that was the first one of the first ideas that I had for the novel. It was like, how interesting would it be to tell a story? You know, organize an entire story by the you know down to the scent. Uh, kind of spending power budget that a uh, that an individual had and really see how that that digit begins to you know not just crush down on the person's sense of both self-worth and autonomy because you know there's so much embedded in our, our spending power in terms of our really how we assess our our own self-worth right but also mm-hmm. how we get to you know, get to experience the day because, I mean, public spaces are shrinking and being privatized and there's just so little you can do in this society without paying, right? Uh, It's like I was talking to a friend the the other day and he was saying, you know, even going for a walk in the city, you got to pay because there's there's somebody begging and you're you're not you can't say no you know like hmm. you're relegating an, a part of your own humanity by withholding a dollar from somebody asking for help on the street and uh, i mean every component of life these days involves a transaction you know i i, I was trying to figure out why that dollar amount at the beginning of each chapter was so so overshadowing for me, so omnipresent through the narrative of the chapter. And I, I, you know, I wrestled with this, like, is this just because I'm a super frugal person? Yes, I am. I always know where my money is. And to know that this father has, I don't know, $11.14 to his name for whatever amount of time was just, it was so uncomfortable in reading the chapters. I mean, I squirmed thinking, you know, he's making decisions. I'm like, no, don't do that. It's going to cost $6, and then you're only going to have five left. I mean, it. I, I, what, what have other people said to you about the experience of having that kind of, that, that rhythm 
behind the chapters, what that was like for them? Because I want to know why it was so uncomfortable for me. Yeah, I think I think it's a pretty common experience, and I'm, I mean, it's a little bit sadistic, but I'm really glad to hear that it had the effect <laughs> of making you squirm because that is, that's exactly what I wanted the reader to feel, you know, viscerally feel that pinch because you know money is such such an abstraction these days as well when you know uh, just the way it's all digital and everything so and, and moving away from cash but when you're down to your last couple bucks and i mean you're feeling the nickels and pennies clink away right like that that is just excruciating and so i really wanted to you know convey that to the reader but i also wanted it to be authentic to you know to talking about how people do spend their money and and the kind of judgments you know more bourgeois reader might have with that and one of the reactions that really meant the most to me was a very very close friend of mine works at uh, the VA and and mm-hmm. works with you know veterans who are suffering from PTSD and are living on the fringes experiencing homelessness in and out you know very uh, unstable housing experiences, etc. And she she was talking about those who are on welfare. Some of them, you know, do as soon as that check comes in, will splurge. And mm-hmm. uh, and there's this kind of judgment that anybody from a you know middle class kind of experience would cast some sort of judgment on that decision. It's like, well, why this is that that's the kind of fiscal irresponsibility that put them there in the first place. And she p- said no. That's a very authentic kind of depiction of some of these kinds of spending decisions is because of the kind of economic precarity that they've experienced for so long. When somebody in that position has money, they don't know the experience of being able to hold it. They know it can come and go, that some sort of bill might take it away from them, that they just are going to experience and enjoy it because everything else is so bleak and uncertain. And so I found that, you know, when he does treat him, when the after, you know, a job interview goes well for Henry and he treats himself to a beer, I mean, just a beer from a gas station, you know, so many people have written to me. It's like, why, why would he do that? And he's like, because he just, really? yeah, you know, and, uh, and yeah, so people have expressed frustration with that. And, um, and I said, well, I, I think it's human. I mean, what? Well, well, you wouldn't buy yourself a beer after, you know, finally doing something good and having just a little morsel of hope? I mean, I certainly mm-hmm. would. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, what what we're talking about here is, you know, that phrase living paycheck to paycheck is thrown around a lot in our political debates. Mm-hmm. Most, I, I, let me say this, many Americans, not most, many Americans maybe had a temporary experience with it, you know, you get like you were describing about getting out of college and the housing crisis. You know, I remember living what felt like that, although, of course, I always had the safety net, right, Mm -hmm. of my parents to step in if it got too hard. I think so many of us are removed from a life of living paycheck to paycheck and what that really means. I mean, you know, you can, as you noted, you can hear that in the voices of the mothers that we listen to who got that extra money during COVID and just felt like it wasn't down to the last few cents. But I think you get, 
even if you've had temporary experience with it, you get very far removed. And whenever I hear it in the political debate, I just think this this is many of us have just become kind of numb to to what that really means. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But um, but I also want to point out that the, the experience of living paycheck to paycheck this is actually. The majority of Americans, I believe, it's sixty-three percent are you know would qualify as living paycheck to paycheck, and you know with that kind of metric, it it might not cover people who might have a safety net. But I really mm-hmm. think that that's not you know even in your experience where you could have made a phone call to your folks and you know things got that bad. But the point is this, that that's a real sacrifice of dignity. I mean, right. what what person right. who's working forty hours and in many many cases more than forty hours plus should have to resort to calling mom and dad for a bailout? I mean, if if that's even an option for somebody, you know, regardless of what what kind of safety nets available, no. I mean, I think it's frankly unacceptable that any kind of job working what is the societal expectation base of forty hours a week that that it's not acceptable that people should be on the brink of starvation and poverty after sacrificing that much of their life five days a week, six days a week, seven days a week, whatever it is, right? You know, it's interesting. You noted that you heard from people who were like, why is Henry buying, spending his precious money buying a beer? Um, it just reminds me of, there is a, this is no newsflash. There's so much judgment about it is easy to sit in a place of comfort and plenty and judge the decisions that somebody you know is making with much less and you know what is that is that some kind i mean that's like a moral righteousness that says well i would never be in that place because fill in the blank but as you note, so many Americans are. Why is there such an atmosphere of judgment about it, do you think? Oh, boy. Well, now, now I'm going to get preachy because <laughs> I'm... Uh, Let but, it roll. <laughs> um, I think, I mean, I, what, I think one of the biggest turning points historically is kind of the rise of this... The, of, of neoliberalism, you know, in the late 70s and 80s, this the shift of the cultural onus onto individuals. You start hearing Thatcher and Reagan and Milton Friedman, you know, spouting all these ideas of individual responsibility, individual responsibility, taking the 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 problems of society that were discussed in much broader terms as, you know, failings of the state, of failings of organization, community, etc., and really saying. You know what? No, it's it's uh, all you know. All these awful terms like welfare queens and whatever mm-hmm. you know. These really icky, loaded political terms that start flying around and are you know loaded with racism and classism and all sorts of ickiness. And they start become you know are commonplace. We still hear you know so so many coded terms that you know persist to this day. That you know really really press the onus uh, on individual failings when it's so much more complicated that than that and but it is it's easy for people to 
kind of digest and and shirk off when you're driving by and you see you know these kinds of encampments of of human beings of fellow Americans living under tarps under bridges right it's like oh what uh, you know what they made some bad decisions that's on mm-hmm. them and i'm mm-hmm. you know going to get another big mac whatever it is mm-hmm. it's easier more convenient for anybody in a position of you know relative more um material comfort to shirk it off that way and keep spending keep buying keep things moving you know and uh, sermon over my god <laughs> forget i'm on the radio oh my god <laughs> I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to a sermon, no, a conversation with <laughs> Jacob Guanzon um, about his newest novel or debut novel, I should say, Abundance. I'm a little late to the party. I will say that on this novel. It came out about a year ago, but uh, I discovered it and I love it and I'm highly recommending it. And Jacob is joining us today from New York. Um, so I asked if you would read an excerpt and I can say a few things about where we are in the novel, but then maybe you'll add something to it. Yeah. Abundance is unfolding in the days before Henry, this father, with very little money to his name and raising his son, uh, has a job interview that he f- that he's convinced will turn things completely around if he can get the job. And he needs some things from the drugstore to make himself presentable, and he really can't afford it. I mean, he's down to his last dollars. What else would you add, Jacob, to where we're at in in the story to help understand it? Yeah, well, I think you've done a really great job of kind of context, you know, setting the the place. But one other important part uh, was that, um, you know, based on some you know unexpected circumstances the previous night he you know had to pick up a, a day laboring job ripping out a driveway with a fella named Jorge earlier this morning who has promised to give him his cut Henry's cut 40 bucks but because of that work he's he's all he's sweaty and gross and has a job interview so he's trying to figure out how is he going to kind of prepare himself and you know make himself decent for this job interview that the you know his day has been building up to so he walks into a drugstore right yeah that's right okay okay henry storms through the entrance and startles a dozing rent-a-cop All the products and displays smear as he power walks in search of the deodorant aisle, still fiddling and failing with the necktie. He pivots, now facing a multicolored wall, each of its hundreds of bricks promising a unique scent of odor-combating technology, none of which are on sale. He reaches for the Old Spice, full price, $4.97. Given what's left in his front pocket, this is extravagant. Still has to buy dinner for Junior, and after this, there's no way he'll be able to purchase some sort of penance for this morning's outburst. Plus, if he wants to get that call from Jorge and the 40 and later hear back from the interviewer, he's got to load the $5 minimum onto his prepay phone, yet another expense he's been putting off, but because who the hell is trying to get a hold of him? Farther down, before the shaving gels and creams and razors and trimmers are sample bottles of cologne, tethered to his shelf by thin metal cables. He sniffs at the nozzles, not sure what to be smelling for. He settles on the Dracar Noir, its French-sounding name seeming more refined than Adidas or Playboy. He untucks his shirt front and stuffs the bottle under the fabric, blindly aiming the nozzle at his left armpit. Don't move. 
The rent-a-cop has assumed the self-seriousness of a real cop, posing at the end of the aisle. Thumbs hooked in his utility belt, he approaches Henry, who is now shocked frozen in this compromising position. To make things work, the panic and embarrassment twitching over his face can't possibly help him look less red-handed. He goes ahead and degrades himself even further when he tries explaining himself the situation, just a little mixed-up misunderstanding, by calling the man Sir. Like a fugitive spotlit, surrounded, and setting his weapon to the ground, he slowly withdraws the cologne, showing it's still secured to the shelf. I'm not, I wasn't stealing, wouldn't steal anything, not even, sir, just testing it, I swear, sir, just, please? The security guard deflates like a fisherman, his line snapped by the first keeper all week. Instead of sir, he refers to Henry as Bud. Had to check. I cyaned, you looked, well, he says wiggling a walkie-talkie antenna at a black plastic sphere screwed into the ceiling. You know. Henry does know. This means the rent-a-cop has probably been watching Henry from the moment he'd stomped in, which also means Henry isn't fooling anyone. Even in this suit, he must look like some deadbeat, loser, degenerate grifter. Like a fool, he thanks the security guard before shuffling away to grab Junior's dinner, a can of Chef Boyardee spaghetti and meatballs. He sets this and a Snickers for himself onto the counter. Without looking up, he tells the cashier he needs to put five bucks on his prepay, gets five digits in only to get thinking, only to reconsider. Jorge won't call. Those forty dollars are gone, which makes these five all the more precious. Never mind, he says. Need help? The cashier's skin is the color and texture of a pecan, imbuing her with a wind-blown yet sturdy air of knowing. The curls of her weave sit in a lush purple nest on her shoulder. Her question has only one answer, but all Henry manages is, Huh? With your tie. She points at the ribbons dangling from his neck. My ex never got the hang of it either. She comes around the counter. Toe-to-toe with Henry, she smells wonderful. A clean, earthy aroma. Manicured nails make tiny clicks against each other in the buttons of his shirt. Her knuckles graze his chest. He's so hungry that he's made a moron, made feeble, and it's been so long since a woman last touched him. As she cinches the knot up to his clavicle, the top of her warm ha- her hand warms the length of his sternum. She pats his upper arm, gives it a squeeze, tells him now that's better, very handsome. Blood rushes to his cheeks, makes him lurch as if by a tide. To her hands, those gentle, delicate hands, he says thank you. Can't quite bring himself to look directly at her, as if doing so might change her mind about him. He turns to leave before he says or does something to embarrass himself. Sir? Yeah, he sputters, twisting back to her. I mean, yes? She is beautiful, exquisite. He wants to empty the cash register and run away with her. You forgot to pay. Total's 318. (laughs) <laughs> Jacob Guanzon reading from his novel Abundance. Oh my gosh, there is so much going on in that in that scene, but the first thing that jumps out to me is you know, he isn't seen by the security guard because the security guard is just like finally I've got a keeper here, found somebody who's trying to cho- shoplift. And then he is seen by the cashier and it's this this kind of whiplash of loss of dignity, kind of a, a moment of dignity restored. Uh, what else? What else am I missing in the scene, Jacob? 
Oh, I think I think you've really touched on some of the key points there. I think there's um, in this you know two page segment. There's a lot that spe- that that exemplifies some of the motifs that are really recurring throughout. Um, both you know these kind of overwhelming. Uh, commercial option or product choices and what that's like when all of these are you know unaffordable to a person but also the the angst of surveillance when you for somebody who is entering a public or an, and even or even worse a commercial space where they know they don't belong in a certain way because they don't have the the money to you know rightfully be there right and so there's this intense imposter syndrome like that you know that 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 follows you everywhere and and in turn alienates you which is why you have i love that what you what you said that that whiplash effect from you know being under the security guards gaze and then later to you know sympathetic cashiers and 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 how starved he is for just any any flicker of you know human uh, you know tenderness or even just you know you know really banal kind of transactional kindness because he's he's so self-conscious about where where he fits in and you know is trespassing and all of this so yeah have you ever had a an experience maybe it's living in Maybe maybe you've experienced this in New York City because it's such a big city and there's so many people crammed so close together. Mm-hmm. But have you had an experience in your life where you have this kind of sense of invisibility that the world is swirling around you and no one really sees you? I mean, invisibility can be a, a curse and a blessing in many ways because, um, you know, uh, very briefly on the uh, on a kind of positive experience is that you know maybe not invisibility but just you know knowing that your presence isn't going to set off you know set set off the alarms mm-hmm. right you, mm-hmm. and and what a privilege that is to to step into a shop and not have a security guard look at you because of you know your your race or your clothing whatever kind of external cues that is but also you know it can be particularly debilitating and 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 really painful and lonely when you're as an individual you're living in a society and i think this is a any a, fairly universal experience regardless of what caused the internal sadness the you know when you're when you're on a packed subway train or sitting in traffic and you're you're feeling alone for whatever reason it is a heartbreak an argument with uh, your your parents whatever you know th- that kind of uh, estrangement from the the what you're feeling so intensely and what others fail to notice is, you know, that's a hard thing to get your head around. <laughs> you know, I want to ask you something about something you wrote in the acknowledgments yeah. section that I, I found intriguing. You reach out to four parents, two of them who have your last name, and two of them who are named Me Wickstrom and Jib Pellet. Did I did I pronounce that yeah, right? Gib, yep, Gib. Gib. Pellet. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. Not like the sale, Gib. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
So they all sound like they're very important to you. Would you would you satisfy a bit of my curiosity about this? You're lucky to oh, have four parents. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm uh, I'm not religious, but I do feel blessed by by the people who raised me um, for having them in my life. Um, but it's Nilo is Nilo is my father, and Zoe is his new is his wife. Um, they've, they've been married for like ten years now, and then me uh, Mia Wickstrom is my biological mother, and Gib is her husband, and. Um, and I mean, they've all been in my life for. I mean, my step parents have been in my life for decades now, and um, and but both of my parents, you know, both they're both immigrants, and um, and so and they they did the best with what they could to get me to where I I am at now, and I, you know any any opportunities that I've had are strictly made possible by by their sacrifices and to be in this position today like look i'm on i'm on the radio like what (laughs) this is nuts i'm I'm having i I keep forgetting that i'm having such a nice time speaking with you carrie that it's like a phone call with a friend and like oh my god broadcast so yeah (laughs) gotta check okay but yes i'm Um, i'm blessed (laughs) so so to to understand this both of your parents are who who have gone on to marry other people who are also in your life, but both of your parents are immigrants to the United States. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, my father okay. from the Philippines and mother from Sweden. Okay. So you, the other thing you add in this acknowledgement is, "Who taught me a dollar is measured by sacrifice, as well as how to sift love from life's rubble." What a beautiful, elegant, intriguing note what does it mean what does it say they uh, that thank you i haven't spoken about the acknowledgments it's really personal but it's um i think it's it's interesting to to kind of unpack that a little um well be because we you know we they 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 provided a comfortable life for me but money was tight and um at times and you know i (laughs) I remember. I think it's a common lesson that uh, that you know kids in middle and working class families are going to hear is uh, you know that that I, f- I forget what the toy was, but being in Walmart or a Target and looking at some GI Joe figurine and my dad point you know I, I was wanting it and he said you know well how you know that's an hour of a man's life you know look huh. and you know, looking at the price tag, it's like talked about the minimum wage and it's like that, you know, that's an hour of a man's life. You think that's worth it? And so really thinking about things in terms of, you know, (laughs) your time on earth against uh, (laughs) whatever you're buying, right? Really, you know, has stuck with me. And I, and that those are the kinds of things that um, still calculate into what, what I do with both my time and money, which are both, you know, precious and, you know, and really important factors into any calculation. And then, you know, sifting love from life's rubble, you know, is things got, things have been messy personally for all, for us as a family, but we've, I think we're at a, a place of real peace and contentment and have really found our strive, uh, stride as a family, despite, you know, some tumult coming up. And, uh, and that's something I'm eternally grateful for. I don't think I'd be the adult I am now 
uh, if we as a family hadn't kind of all f- evened out and found our kind of rhythms, both you know individually and together. Do you do you ever feel like you are that understanding of what where the money comes from and how what it takes to make it? Do you ever feel like that might be slipping away? And if you do, what do you do to bring that back close to you? Um, you know, I'm uh, I'm, I'm still not in. I'm 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 a little bit more comfortable now, but I financially, but because of the book and more than the book. <laughs> the fact that student loans have been on pause for the last uh, two and a half years because my god um I, up until that point i was paycheck to paycheck you know i like um no nothing being put in savings kind of lifestyle and um and so that i i feel like that that's something that you you come up with and anytime there's extra you know money it's 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 to be shared. I don't, I'm, I'm trying to be wise about it and save, but it's also anytime I can, it's to, it's to share. And I think that, you know, it's, it, Oh God, what is the, the, the quote? It's, you know, think, thinking about money as, as, um, kind of air. It's, it's not, it's never yours. It just, it just goes through you, you know, and, <laughs> and re- trying to remove yourself right. from the, the, the notion of hoarding it is, I think, uh, at least it's healthy for me to kind of ground myself into, in, into just how I want to be with money myself. Jacob Guanzan's novel is titled Abundance. He joined us today from New York City. Jacob, I've loved the conversation. Thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure, Carrie. Thank you so much for having me.